The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. As you open your Bibles, let me take this opportunity to say good morning. It's good to be together, isn't it? Uh, Pastor Brian is, is not feeling well this morning, and so uh, I get the joy of being up here to, to share with you today, but please be, be praying for him. And before uh, we get started, would you please pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for the mercy that you show us every day. Thank you that we can come together as a body of believers, and worship you. We ask that you would give us ears that we might hear and receive your word. We do not want to be those who are hearers only, then look at our face in the mirror and turn away and forget what we have seen. May we be doers of this word. Speak to us. Give us humble hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our section of, of Scripture this morning that we're going to cover is in 1 Peter and chapter 3, and verses 1 through 7. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? In 1 Peter, God's Word says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, submission. Who doesn't like this topic, huh? You know, it's good sometimes when we can cover a topic that has no controversy or a part of the Bible that nobody really struggles with, but... We may have to wait for another time for that. <clears throat> now, I do want to provide a little bit of a disclaimer, though. I recognize that for some, this topic brings with it some anxiety. My prayer in preparing this message is that I would be faithful to the text. There are some that, that take exception to this text. They don't like it. It, it doesn't feel right. I pray that you will hear what the text says, but also, and less importantly, 
but hear my heart with it. But I'll be honest, people that might take issue with this passage are not my main concern. Who I am more concerned about with this text and who I do want to be sensitive with are those that that have painful history or painful memories as it relates to abuses of this text. Maybe abuses from those who infer things from this text that it does not say. I recognize that this is not the only place in Scripture that discusses the topic of of submission in marriage. But I'm going to focus this morning on what Peter is saying in this particular passage. And if this text brings up painful memories or reminds you of past hurts, please feel free to talk to me about it. Talk to me or or somebody else in the church. Let your, your church body come alongside you. Okay, so this idea of submission, we've talked about this now as it relates to to government. Then we we moved a little closer to talk about it as it relates to work. And now we move even closer to talk about it in the context of marriage. And as hard as maybe the other two are to apply for some, for many, this text may be the hardest. But note that the theme is the same. We submit to God, ultimately, and that submission to God can give us freedom to submit in other areas, too. I mentioned last time, as it relates to work, that this text applies even if you are retired or not in the workforce. This week, I want to encourage you who are single, whether that's because you've never been married, you're you're divorced, or whether that's because your spouse has, has died and you're a widow or a widower. Don't tune out thinking that this doesn't apply to you because Scripture tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's something here for all of us. And it would not be fair to the text to treat it as though... All it has to do with is is a wife's submission to their husband. Too often, I think, when we read verses 1 through 7, we can tend to focus on verse 1, where it says, be subject to your own husband or submit to your own husband. We can key in on verse 5 that says, submitting to their own husbands. Or we read verse 7 that talks about women as as the weaker vessel. Maybe we think, I don't like that. Maybe it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like the way it makes us feel. It sounds outdated, chauvinistic, and so we we throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And we we miss what is really what really is the heart of this passage and what is what is the beauty of this passage. And I remind you that this is the word of God. And we, as believers in Jesus, who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We, as Christians, submit to Scripture and not our feelings. Okay, so let's do this. Let's let's dive in. Let's read verse 1 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, 
So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Notice that it starts with the word likewise. So we have a continuation. Remember what we've looked at previously. In chapter 2, and verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then in verse 18, we read, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And now in our text this morning, with verse 1, God's word says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So as much as we might want to pick and choose from these, the truth is there's not an asterisk with any of these. This is what Scripture says. And we can't say, you know, I'm good with this one or, or those two, but, well, not this one or not those two. Again, we've come to an important theme of the letter. Perhaps it's gravitational center. The principle of submission directly relates to the example and the person of Christ in chapter 2 and verses 21 to 25 that we discussed last time. The submission of which Peter speaks is not adherence to a principle, but recognition of the person who compels us to submit in order to live lives of godly obedience. In all three cases, Christians are to present themselves before a watchful world as people who emulate Jesus. We are to pattern our lives on his example. For in doing so, in doing so we present the world fresh and vibrant pictures of living hope. Clearly, that is the logic of our, of our opening verses. Peter is laying out these illustrations, and in all three, he's talking about unbelievers, ungodly governments, unjust bosses, and unbelieving husbands. But let me just make clear. Peter's intention is that this applies to all Christian wives, not just those who are married to unbelieving husbands. Be subject, it says. Wives, be subjects to your own husbands. If you see later in the text, in verse 5, it uses the word submitting to their own husbands. It's actually the same Greek word. It can be translated as subject or submit. It's the main quality highlighted in this passage. But now it bears mentioning again. It's not the only quality. We don't want to see everything through the lens of submission. But neither can we ignore this command. It's emphasized here because it's the theme of this this whole section. This is what we have just looked at in verse 13 and 18 of chapter 2. All of us have relationships of authority. Every single one of us. We have authority over us in, in different spheres. Whether it's in the church, in the home, in the state, certainly with God or as our ultimate authority. And so it's emphasized here that the wife is supposed to be submissive to her husband. Now, before we go into what this means, I want to say a few things about what Peter's call to submission does not mean for Christian wives. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith, that you should do so. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin, you should do so. And with that, we should note that if your husband asks you to sin, and you do you both bear responsibility. 
He does for asking this and you do for committing the sin. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing view. It does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you, you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you, you must remain quietly in the home and accept daily cruelty of the relationship at all costs. It does not mean that you give up independent thought. It does not mean that you give up trying to influence. In fact, isn't this what this whole text is about? The wife wants to influence the husband. It doesn't mean that the wife blindly gives in to every demand. So note that verses 1 through 6 has wives in view here. But husbands, listen up. I want you to get this in particular. Submission in marriage is freely given, not forcibly taken. The command is not, husbands, see to it that your wives submit to you. There's a lot of issues, sometimes abuse that happens if husbands think that that's what the command is. The command is that wives would freely, graciously, humbly, genuinely, intelligently, of their own accord, submit themselves. It is the wife's command to give, not the husband's command to enforce. And we know from the rest of Scripture that submission is not without limits. Again, wives are not obligated to accept a husband's sinful behavior, just like you're not obligated to submit to governing authorities if they command you to violate God's law. So the wife submits to her husband, but not in violation to God's law. Wives submit to their husbands not because they are inferior or less intelligent or less spiritual. They submit out of reverence to God. You see this in chapter 2 in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So this whole section of authority and submission has waving over it as a banner, the line, for the Lord's sake. A wife submits to the husband not because the husband is automatically deserving of it or automatically more spiritual or more knowledgeable or or prays more. In fact, he often doesn't. But the wife freely gives this submission out of reverence to God. So if that's what submission is not, then what is it? One commentator described it this way. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's a disposition. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead in love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. But again, submission does not follow a husband into sin. What then does submission say in those situations? Well, it might look something like this. A wife might Say to her husband, it grieves me when you indulge in sinful acts and want to take me with you. 
You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I, I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. Notice also that the text says, to your own husbands. Peter does not call all women to submit to all men. He calls all women to submit to their own husbands. Submission is not rooted in who your husband is or how responsible he is. It's not rooted in whether or not your husband is a believer. Submission is rooted in God's good and wise authority. Women are not inferior to men. Any more than submissive Christians are inferior to pagan rulers or unjust bosses. Now looking at our text again, it says, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. A theme of these passages from 2.13 through 3.7 that I've tried to point out all along is that our conduct matters. That God may be using our conduct, may be using our obedience to fold others into his family. So our text says, so that even if some do not obey the word, even if they are an unbeliever, know that it does not say only if they do not obey the word, or only if they are an unbeliever. In the same way, it does not say that this is only for wives married to believing husbands. This is for all wives. They are to do it either way, if they are married to a believing husband, or even if they are married to an unbelieving husband. So yes, it is for wives everywhere. But what Peter is doing is to really take take the hard case. Okay, it's one thing to to submit yourself to a wonderful, mature Christian husband who makes you breakfast in bed and brings you flowers and never forgets an anniversary. And it's just wonderful all the time. Let's be clear. For some, this is not that hard because their husband is amazing. Am I right, honey? (laughs) See, it's easy for Jessica. Okay, well, maybe not so much. What if that's not what your husband is like? Or what if he's only like that on your birthday? Or like once a decade? Or what if, now again, Peter takes the hard one. What if you're married to a non-Christian? That's the implication here, that the person does not know the Lord. Now, it's it's not advocating for for a second that we ought to marry non-Christians. But as would happen here, somebody came to know Christ, and it was the wife, and it was not the husband. That's what we presume has happened. Certainly, it could be the other way around, but this example that Peter is using is that the wife came to know Christ, and her husband didn't. He did not obey the word. And so, what is she to do now? She doesn't have the perfect scenario. She doesn't have the ideal husband. In fact, she's married to an unbeliever. She is a sojourner and an exile in her own home. She is part of a chosen race that at present does not include her husband. 
And this is the reality for some of you in this room. Well, even here, Peter says that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. He says that they may be one. Look at verse 1. One without words. So you take this within the context. It's not saying wives can never speak. They can never correct their husband. They can never offer an opinion. Of course, that would be unhealthy. What it is saying is that they would be won by the conduct of their wives, by the actions of their wives, by the way that their wives treat them. So God's word says, you know, maybe you, you step back, you, you pray more, you try a little less, you be godly. Not that you can never speak, certainly you should articulate the gospel. But it can be a fine line between articulating the gospel and belittling your husband because you think, or indeed he is, less spiritual than you are. You are to be a doer of the word. You show him with your actions, your submission to Christ. Demonstrate how the gospel has changed you. Demonstrate your need for Christ, your need for grace, your need for mercy in how you act and how you treat him and others. Sometimes one of the hardest things to do when it comes to people close to us, people we love dearly, whether that be our spouse or our kids, we can feel that it's our job to be the Holy Spirit in their lives. As though it's our job to point out sin and convict. That is not our job. That is not your role. So you know your role. You focus on that and you leave the Holy Spirit to do his role. So the gospel ought to make us more loving, more sensitive, more respectful. The aim is that the husband would say, my wife is is different, and it's a good different. And even though I'm not sure I really want to accept all this mumbo-jumbo Jesus stuff, I can't deny that it sure has done an amazing thing in her life. Win over your husband without words by a submissive spirit. Well, now let's look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. I see some of you right now going, oh, it's all the days to braid my hair for church. (laughs) So is this first saying that women should not braid their hair, that they should not put on jewelry? No. No, if it were saying that, it would also have to include or also be saying that women should not wear clothing. So we know that Peter is not saying that. No, in fact, it's a good idea. To be clear, the elders are very much in favor, in fact, insist on women wearing clothing. Now, what he's, he's saying is your beauty, your focus, is not to be, a be, is not to be upon these things. Peter is not saying that Christians have to be as ugly as possible. Beauty is often praised throughout the Bible. Esther, Rachel, Sarah, often godly women noted for their beauty. What the Bible is against is not being beautiful. It's against letting external beauty be your overriding passion or identity or obsession. What it's saying is, women, don't let your looks be what you are most known for. 
Now, somebody would just talk about you in a group and try to describe you. Yes, sometimes we use language like short or tall or glasses or not or what hair color. But what is it about you that makes you most noticeable? How are you viewed? God's word says, let it not be your looks, but let it be your attitude or your demeanor. If you are spending lots of time, lots of money, lots of energy on your external appearance, God's word says you need to think about and ask, do you have your priorities right? It's not necessarily automatically wrong, but certainly something to bring before the Lord in prayer. What is it about you that you hope people remember when they walk away? Is it that you're dressed in the latest style? Or is it your heart? It's saying, do not let your adorning be external. Do not focus your main attention and effort on how you look on the outside. Focus on the beauty that is inside. Exert more effort and be more concerned with inner beauty than outer beauty. We see this if we keep going with verses 4 through 6. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Very precious, the text says. Oh, that we would be motivated by what God says is very precious and not what the world says. Notice the contrast. Inside instead of outside. Imperishable beauty instead of fading beauty. It says a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, gentleness is required of all Christians. This isn't just for wives or just for women. But it is described here as something marking the character of a wife. Now, note, this is not personality. Peter is not talking about personality. We likely all know loud women married to shy and quiet husbands. And yet, when you get to know them, you can see absolutely that the husband is a gracious leader in, the, in his house and that the loud, more dynamic wife is very humble and gentle support. So this is not saying, women, you need to go out and you need to get a different personality. I think quiet spirit is basically a synonym with submissiveness. It means you show deference to your husband. You look to him for leadership. A gentle Quiet. There's certain calmness about godly women. There's a certain, I'm okay with who I am in Christ, about a holy wife. Women ought not to be vain. They should not act as though they are actually the ones in charge of their dopey husbands. When we consider verses 5 and 6, Peter says this is how the holy women of old, he's probably thinking of Sarah, or Rebecca, Leah, Rachel... Now, you read about these women. They were far from perfect, but they adorned themselves the right way, submitting to their husbands. And then verse 6 gives us a specific example. Sarah obeyed Abraham. 
Now, it's not the same as a parent-child obedience. By submitting to your husband's will, at times means giving your husband the final say. It's not very often that a decision in our home comes down to this. Often we agree or we have time to continue to think about it until a decision needs to be made. But at some point, a final decision needs to be made. And a wife unwilling to submit to her husband's leadership is going to create tension when that time comes. It's not that Jessica doesn't have a voice. She is very smart. And I would be a fool to not get her opinion and give great consideration to that. We also see this in the text. Sarah obeyed Abraham. We can kind of think, eh, submit sounds better than obey. But there's an element of that here. But the next word, that seems even worse. Calling him Lord. Okay, what do we do with that? If I could muster a British accent, I might be able to... We we can hear that more there. But you understand there's some different cultural language. This isn't a a word that we use for anything here in America. Maybe a good translation would be something like, My dear husband... Something that conveys affection, that conveys respect, that conveys a sense of authority. That's what the point is. So let's not get hung up on the word Lord, which is not a common word for us to use anymore. But that Sarah spoke of her husband in this respectful way, in a way that honored him, afforded him respect by position, by virtue of of the position that he held in God's economy. So wives... Do your husbands know that you respect them? Does he know that? Do you speak about him in a way that is respectful? Listen, underneath a lot of bravado that a lot of men do, most men can survive some criticism from their friends. They can survive discouragement at work. But they will be absolutely undone if they go home and they have a wife that doesn't respect them there. They sense, you know, I go everywhere else and people want to hear what I have to say. I go home and my wife treats me like I'm just one of the children. And that's absolutely devastating. But you notice there's a condition at the end of verse 6. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the do good means if you are pursuing this, maybe not perfectly, but you are striving for this. But then this is, this is strange. If you do not fear anything that is frightening. There's a lot of disagreement about what this might mean. If you don't fear anything that is frightening. How do we not fear something frightening? I think we we have to remember the context, and we go back to verse 1. We're talking about a wife, in particular, who doesn't have a Christian husband. So I think what it's saying is, the wife is godly, not afraid her husband will dislike her because she's become a Christian. Or perhaps even more likely in our context, you're not afraid that my husband, he won't change. Or I'm not afraid that my husband won't notice my efforts. In other words, you do what you can. What you're responsible for. 
as a daughter of Sarah, you are not responsible to change your husband. God's not telling you that it's your job to change your husband. What he's saying is that you, for the sake of your relationship with Christ, need to be responsible for your own change. You only can change you and with God's help. One criticism that I have with so many marriage books, even some Christian marriage books, is that they focus almost solely on needs motivation. He needs respect, she needs love, he needs this, she needs that. And so it's a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And certainly, you know, there's some sanctified common sense there. It's not all bad. But you notice that's not, that's not the motivation here. Peter is not saying wives need to submit to their husbands and respect to them because the husband needs it, though he may. God, rather, is expecting wives to submit to their husbands and respect them because you trust Christ. You see that in verse 5? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God. That's what this is all about. It's not just about here. It's not that Peter all of a sudden was like, well, you know, I've been writing a lot about suffering and writing about sanctification. I think I'm just going to throw in this random marriage section. No, this is all talking about the same thing. This is all about how you live a life glorifying to God. How do you hope in God? Well, hope in God now applies to your role as a wife. You notice it does not say that they hoped in their husbands. It does not say that they hoped in their children. It does not say that they put their hope in how they looked. It says they hoped in God. They hoped in God to vindicate them. They hoped in God to see their righteousness, even if their husband doesn't. They hoped in God to pay attention to perhaps their long suffering. They hoped in God that he would hear their prayers. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her look. She puts her hope in the promises of God. Now, certainly, please hear me. I'm not advocating for silent suffering in marriage. I'm not suggesting that wives cannot do anything to make their marriage better or that the husband can never be confronted. Surely he must. What I am saying is, how you treat your husband is a measure of your hope in God. Now, not to be ignored, let's look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, yes, I know. Wives get six verses, and the husband gets one. Not because men have less to learn about marriage, but because Peter's primary concern in this whole section of his epistle is to address those who perhaps were without power, maybe even facing oppression. 
In fact, it's significant that Peter says nothing here directed towards governing authorities. Nothing in this section towards masters. Of these three categories, government, vocation, and marriage, it's only with marriage that Peter stops to address those who are in what we think of as the position of authority. And so it's less about thinking, well, he's only got one verse for the husbands. Recognizing it's unique that in this section he would say anything. And that what he would say is more than enough for us to consider. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with her. This means more than just being her roommate. But that you work to learn about her, to understand her. Husbands ought to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, so what does this mean, a weaker vessel? It sticks out here. Maybe we don't like it. But what does it mean? Well, it certainly does not mean women are intellectually weaker or spiritually weaker or in their personhood somehow lesser. Scripture says none of these things. Some refer to it as talking about physical strength, and and that certainly can be part of it. But I'm not sure that's mainly what Peter has in mind. Think of the context. The context here is wives submitting to their husbands. And then verse 6, wives, don't fear anything that is frightening. Like a, a harsh husband. That's frightening. Peter's concern, therefore, coming on the heels of verse 6, is that husbands not take advantage of this authority. So when he says, pay attention to your wife, live with them, honor them as weaker vessels, it's a command to the husband, remember, not to the wife. It does not say, wives, remember, you are a weaker vessel, so know your place. That's not what this is about. The point, rather, is to honor the woman as the weaker vessel. As one who, in God's economy, has the relative position of weakness. The one who submits. The one who, like Sarah, calls Abraham Lord. And so the command to the husband is you do not exploit that. You do not oppress that. You honor the one who is in that position. You know, there's, there's one other time when this comparative form of weaker, that word, that adjective, is used in the New Testament. And it's in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, where it says, the, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. So there, Paul's analogy is, you think the parts of the body that are weaker are weak, fine. But then they deserve greater honor, greater respect. It's the same argument that Peter is making here in our text. Husbands, your wife is, like, is likely not as strong as you physically. And, and so you never, ever threaten or strike her. Husbands, your wife maybe perhaps more sensitive. So you take extra care to be considerate. If you come home from work and your wife is frazzled 
frustrated, worn out by the kids or perhaps her own work. You don't get frustrated or impatient with her. You show extra kindness, sympathy, and support. What we see here is the wife's submission is never an excuse for a husband to be harsh, abusive, or tyrannical. And I can tell you, if there are men behaving that way toward their wives, and the pastors and elders of this church find out about it, we will deal with it. And we will deal with it firmly and strongly, because it is unacceptable. The wife's position of weakness is all the more reason for the husband to treat her like someone special, to honor her as a weaker vessel, to cherish her. Peter recognizes that it can be tempting for husbands to exercise their authority in a cruel and demeaning way. Therefore, in keeping with the biblical teaching on the dignity dignity of both men and women, he calls husbands to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. Far from taking advantage of their own physical power, objectifying their wives, or using their authority in a cruel and demeaning way, husbands must instead respect their wives, exercise leadership lovingly and considerately. When this is done, the prayers of the couple are not hindered. Peter calls on husbands to give honor to the wife because they are heirs together of the grace of life. Husbands and wives are in it together. And if both are Christians, they share an inheritance. They are joint heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. Husbands are to give honor so that their prayers may not be hindered. The implication of this text is that if husbands fail to love, honor, and respect their lives, that behavior will hinder their prayers. Likewise, wives, if you Resist submitting to your husband. That posture will hinder your prayers. So, husbands, if you have been shirking your responsibility, maybe by being too controlling or by being too passive, hear me when I say it's time. It's time to humbly lead your wives and lead your families. This is your role. Whether you knew it or not, whether you knew when you got married that this is what you were signing up for, this is your role. And you're leading them now. You are already leading. It's really just a question of are you leading them well? Are you leading them in the things of God or are you leading them in the things of the world? It has been said that the central message in complementarianism, which is a big word that means men and women are given different roles in the home, but they complement one another. It has been said that the the big message in complementarianism is not women sit down, it's men stand up. That's the message. Husbands and wives are both heirs of the grace of life. Women, whether married or single, exert more effort and more concerned with inner beauty than outer beauty. Men, whether married or single, show women honor. Men and women are different. And our society has lost its mind on this very point. 
They try to say that gender is just a feeling, that it's fluid, that men can be women and women can be men if they feel like it. And that is a lie. Men and women are very different. And that is a wonderful thing. We have different roles when it comes to marriage. But these roles are not meant to come head to head in a battle for control. But when done humbly, they complement each other beautifully. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we pray that you would help us as believers. That we may walk in faith and humility in marriage and out of marriage. Pray that you would convict us of our sin. If we have run afoul of these things, if we have doubted your promises, we pray not just that you would work on us as individuals, whether married or single, but as a church. We pray, Lord, that we would grow together as married couples, as children, as those who have been divorced, as widows and widowers, single people, students, that we might follow you in whatever stage you have given us for this season or for for our lives and whatever gifts for the manifestation of the common good, that we may build up the body of Christ and we would bring you glory. We pray that you would take our lives and use them as you see fit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.